Hi, I'm Greg Weldon, and we're here with the premier episode of Money, Markets, and New Age Investing. And of course, I am your host. I'm going to take you on quite the journey. I'm going to start with my journey, with my journey into the financial world, which really started with an Ivy League education. I played Division I basketball. I studied English literature. Didn't give me much of a benefit in terms of being handed you know, an investment banking job once I landed on Wall Street. It's funny because I didn't even know what I wanted to do, really. And I ended up visiting a friend of mine who worked on the trading floor of the Commodities Exchange in New York in the World Trade Center in the gold pit. And I was visiting him. It was his birthday. He was a high school buddy of mine. I decided to go out and uh, paint the town red in, in Manhattan. I lived uh, in New York City. And, uh, you know, went down and visited him and saw the exchange. And it was so exciting. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was just amazing. The electricity of the place was mind-blowing. This giant multi-football field-sized room with little pits and, you know, I mean, literally pits. They went down. You had stairs. You could climb down into the pit. They were giant circles with guys standing on it, screaming at each other in the colored coats and the whole nine yards. Watched the movie Trading Places. They filmed that movie right where I worked. I literally stood in the same spot as the actors. They came in on a weekend. They had a lottery to see all the people that worked there who could be extras in the film. Many of my friends are in that movie, friends to this day. We always get a kick out of it every time we see it. But thinking about going, you know, as a 23-year-old to visit my buddy and seeing this place, and I was in awe. And I'm standing there, and this older gentleman comes up to me, and he says, you know, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, wow, this place is amazing. And I kind of view this as like, this is the this is the lane, man, in, in basketball. I need to get in there and throw some elbows, and I, I feel like I need to be down here. And, you know, so we had a nice, you know, 10-minute conversation. My friend had finished with his write-ups. Of course, everything's paper. There's paper littering the, the place. It was, you know, it was just a zoo, man. And we start to walk off the floor. And I turned to my friend and I said to him, how do you get a job down here? And he says, you got to know somebody. And I said, well, do you know anybody you can maybe introduce me to? He goes, that guy you were just talking to owns the largest firm on the floor. One of those life-defining moments, I planted my foot, I did an about-face, and I went back to him and asked him for a job. He called his son over, who actually ran the firm for him, Craig Bell. This was Stanley B. Bell and, and company back in the day. We're talking like 1984. And, uh, you know, Craig Bell was one of those guys who just had presence. He just was such a presence that as he moved People moved out of his way before they even turned around to see that he was coming type of thing. And I'm not exaggerating. And I never measure, you know, size in height. I'm almost seven feet tall. Craig Bell was about five, seven, but he was a commanding figure. And he came over to me and came right up into my stomach. And he looked up and he turns to his father and he goes, I want this guy right behind me. And I got the job because of my size. And I come in the next, you know, the first day, and I don't know what I'm doing. I have no clue. You want to talk trial by fire. I mean, this was a true trial by fire. And because I was so tall, they stuck me like right in the middle of the mayhem where people are running and bumping and throwing, you know, handing paper to one another. Every order was on a piece of paper. You had the booth, right? You had phone banks. You had clerks that took phones and wrote down orders and passed that paper to me. You had clerks that were on dedicated lines to people in London or in the Middle East. And it was, of course, gold, gold was a very widely traded commodity back in those days and had huge 
volume and they would scream orders at me and I was what they called the point simply because of my size I took the point and it was one of those jobs where again like you know I it's either you do it or you don't and and I did it and I had no idea but I learned very quickly one thing I've always been is a quick learner and man did I not learn and talk about being in the trenches in the front lines of the financial world man I just signed up and was immediately thrown into trench warfare and I mean it was physical bumping and shoving and fights and screaming and you know I said bye no you said bye and I mean it was complete chaos man and what I learned was I had instincts for it I mean you feel the flow you feel the energy you start to kind of understand when the market's making a move and you see the order flow and you know the Middle Eastern uh, buyers are, are involved and so on and so forth you got to start to know the players know the moves I started keeping point and figure charts which are little X's and O's based on certain price movements by hand as I'm doing this job of handling the book, which was a huge book. And as market moved, I had to turn, you know, pass paper in to either the silver or the gold pit, depending. I had to accept orders as they were coming out. I had to watch in the back of the booth for hand signals so I could, you know, flash in market orders. I mean, talk about learning the market, you know, really at the, from the bottom up. That's what I did. And the fact that it was so archaic at the time, too, everything was on paper. You know, it was insane. I mean, I grew up in the streets in New York, pretty street savvy, you know, obviously Ivy League educated. But, man, that did not prepare me for what I, you know, for the beginning of my career in the, you know, on the trading floor in the World Trade Center of the Commodities Exchange. And I'll tell you what, I wouldn't trade it for the world, you know. It got to the point now where my charts and my instincts, I'm starting to learn the fundamentals little by little. A couple of years in, clients started to want me on the phone. They wanted to know what I thought. They started asking me the questions, you know. I was intricately involved in the price movements, you know. And in that degree, really, 1987 changed a lot of my kind of, uh, you know, uh, acceleration in the business because it called the crash. And I made a ton of money in 1987. And so that was interesting. And, of course, the flip side of that, in 1988, I made a lot of mistakes. I made the mistakes I'm going to try and help you avoid as we go forward. I've made them all. I don't think there's a successful trader, frankly, that hasn't made some of the mistakes that you make because it's so psychological. It is fear, greed, and hope. It is absolutely those things, and you need to learn how to harness yourself, you know? But from the context of moving through the ranks of the business, I was a broker, an institutional futures broker, and we were big in foreign exchange and bonds in particular at Lehman Brothers on the seventh floor in the World Financial Center. I was a broker at Prudential. I worked with one of the largest and most successful hedge funds in the world. I was one of the first employees from the ground up, and it was from this gentleman who's widely considered, at least in my mind, and I think generally speaking, one of the most brilliant traders and money managers of all time doesn't like the press, so I won't mention his name. You can find out, I'm sure. But I mean, I learned from one of the best in the business. And what he taught me was, you know, not only like anticipating things that were going to happen, but thinking all these things out so you know what you might want to do when you start to do it. You theorize, you put in all the things, you connect all the dots, and what if, and what if, and what if. And then key to all this, of course, is risk control. Well, in that vein, when I was at Lehman Brothers, I actually got a chance to go on for what was then Financial News Network. And I called the 1990 crash. 
uh, during that time frame when I was trading at Commodities Corp, which was a, a think tank in the, in the uh, farm country. It was literally a farmhouse, in fact, that we worked out of a think tank in a brilliant place in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, you know, called the move while I was at the hedge fund uh, down in the British pound in 1992. We nailed that one, just, just like some more famous names did. The Gulf War in 1990-91 was a big deal, too. And I remember being, you know, out that night that the Gulf War broke and all the, you know, all of a sudden all the bombs are going off and every news channel is covering and we ran back to the office and got involved in the crude oil market, made a ton of money that night, man. Uh, when I was at Commodity Corp also, 1997 Asian foreign exchange crisis. We caught the Thai bot. We caught the Malaysian ringgit. You know, I've been involved in some of the biggest trades, you know, really that have ever kind of taken place from that degree. Why was that Commodity Corp in the late 90s? Goldman Sachs bought the firm. The evil empire has arrived. The 50% of us left within a matter of weeks. They really wanted the assets, not the people. And, you know, it kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. And what I did was I started Weldon Financial at the time. And the idea here was to help level the playing field. And it's kind of why we're doing the podcast now, too, because of how crazy everything is, you know. But in the context of running my own shop, and, and let me tell you something. I, I, I'm a pretty humble guy. People that know me will, will tell you that right away. But, I mean, you don't last as an independent in this business for 25 years unless you got some value add to offer. And that's what I do. I add, you know, you add value, point out things that maybe someone else is not looking at. You give them an angle that maybe they haven't considered. You give them an idea in a commodity or a market that maybe they're not seeing. You know, that's what we try and do here. Uh, the, you know, in terms of the tech crash of 1999, 2000, I called it on CNBC. I was a regular on a show called The View at the time before The View was The View with Whoopi Goldberg and, and the ladies. Uh, this was a show that was on uh, every Wednesday at 7 o'clock on CNBC. Ted David was the host. I was on one night and called the tech market crash. I said the, the, tech, the, the NASDAQ's going to decline by 80%. The guy almost fell off his chair, Ted David, you know, great, great dude. And I swear I was never invited back. And I got a very nice email from Ted David a few months later when, the, when in fact, the NASDAQ was down over 80%. You know, I kind of have a little bit of a pension for calling these things because, you know, I dig down to the very minutia of the data. I am, a, I am a workaholic, and to the degree that I go through the data, I don't talk about opinion. I don't talk to a whole bunch of people. I don't come up with what's the latest fad. It's about the data, the numbers, the statistics, the fundamentals, and even to the degree it's about the technicals and the markets, even some of the quantitative work that I do. Um, I wrote a book in 2006, and in that book I called a subprime consumer debt crisis coming that was going to cause the Fed to have to buy treasury bonds with newly printed money, i.e. what they call monetizing government debt, something that was considered monetary heresy that would never happen. And now what do you have? You have QE4, QE5, QE in every country. You have MMT, modern monetary theory, where it doesn't matter how much money you print. And the reason is because you never had inflation until more recently. And that's a sign there and something we'll talk about in a few minutes in terms of what this really is, what I have seen over my four decades of doing this is four-fifths or 80% of a 50-year credit bubble that started in 1971, August of 1971, when Richard Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard, and that is the moment that the, the fire was lit. You know, it really is. I've seen it evolve throughout this entire time, all right, to the degree that even in 2008, and, and you always have to be on top of it, man. You always have to be looking forward. 
I mean, you always have to be what's new, you know. And this is one of the reasons I'm glad when I was when I was you know in in uh, college that I did not. I actually took one economics class. I, I dropped it after the very first class. I said, "This can't. There's nothing that can be more boring, more archaic, and frankly useless." You know, you throw this academic stuff out the window because the rules keep changing. The Fed keeps changing the rules. And the Fed changed the rules again in 2018. They published 11 white papers, which is basically theories, right? And in the degree that this was more than theory, because theories are being thrown out the window because you can't apply theories to something that's as unprecedented as what we have right now. All right. So in 2018, they published 11 white papers, over 300 pages. I read every single page. I think that I saw somewhere that was like 6,000 views on online on this portal where they published the stuff. Not a lot of people read this stuff. I read every word. All right. It's a new monetary policy paradigm. The Federal Reserve and global central banks are actually concerned, worried, if you will, that the next recession is going to be really difficult to deal with because they've already had interest rates at zero, right? They've already bought a whole bunch of bonds. I mean, really, you know, it's almost as if this inflation is a blessing to some degree because it has allowed central banks to raise rates so they have some ammunition back. That's key, which only means this goes on even further, which means a lot of opportunity, but it also means more and more volatility, it really is. QE changed everything. QE changed everything. You started dosing the economy. Let's call the economy a patient. You started dosing the patient with monetary steroids. All right. The most recent dosage, $8 trillion worth during the pandemic. Now, that was double the $4 trillion it had to spend in 2008, 2009 to resurrect the patient. As you know, with steroids, there comes a point where it doesn't matter how many more you take, it's not going to make you stronger. In fact, you have a point where you reach where the body looks healthy and big and strong and pump you up in the whole nine yards, and guess what? Internal organs are on the verge of failure. That's the future waiting the economy at some point out in the future. I mean, not right away, maybe not even in this cycle. You might have a cycle or two left. But there's a lot of other things going on as well here, okay, that we're not even yet beginning to broach because they're so significant. When you talk about science, I'm not going to get too scientific on you, but science is a big part of this. You can't ignore science. You can't ignore the fact that you have climate change, okay? Now, we can talk all day long about you know, is, is people dri are people driving SUVs the cause for climate change? And I kind of chuckle when I hear that, okay? I'm all about removing plastics from the ocean. That's one of my little pet peeves and pet projects to the degree that, you know, I, I contribute. But when you talk about climate change, it's not global warming. There's no such thing as global warming because it's bigger than that. In fact, just last year, NASA changed the official you know, way they're going to phrase this, from global warming to solar warming. Global warming, no, no, it's bigger. It's solar warming. The sun is heating up. Every planet is heating up. Ice shelves are melting on Pluto. That is a fact. And it is not caused by people driving SUVs. The degree to which 
what's happening on this planet. If you look at Schumann resonance and you look at the Gauss readings, you look at some, kind of some of what's happening in terms of this planet warming up because it's getting hit with more and more basically, you know, um, highly charged, what they call ketones. What happens is two things primarily. Number one, volatility goes up. And as volatility goes up, it's going up at both ends of a spectrum, which is becoming increasingly polarized. The polarization is intensifying and the volatility at each end of the spectrum is going up. Tell me you don't see it everywhere. On the road, for one thing, you certainly see it in politics. The left and the right are never more far apart. There's fewer middle ground. We've seen it in income for 50 years. Look at wealth, how polarized it is. It's ever more polarized. Weather. The weather's more polarized. It's not just warmer. It's also record cold. It's not just record floods. It's record drought. And in fact, you have a record drought of 1,200 years of magnitude in Spain and Portugal right now, in the U.S., in terms of the 48 contiguous states and the amount of land mass that is considered by NOAA to be under severe drought. It's the worst in recorded history. I mean, and human behavior. Look at violence. Look at some of these shows on television about conflicts in stores and in neighborhoods. And oh my God, people have kind of lost their minds, it seems, right? It's scientific. It's part of what's happening, all right? And we can kind of really, you know, see this through a lot of new technologies that allow us to measure certain scientific factors that are contributing to this. The big part of this is it's not going to reverse Anytime soon, it's only going to continue to intensify. And that's what makes it so exciting and so dang scary and frightening at the same time. So within that context, we also have the markets ever more volatile. You can't just pump in trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and not think you're going to have some kind of impact on volatility, let alone, of course, inflation, because in the pandemic, all of a sudden you have less goods available. And what's the definition of inflation? More money chasing fewer goods. You had the ultimate defined inflation just took place. And while central banks, and specifically the Fed, want to tell you that it's transitory or that we're going to defeat it or we're going to bring inflation down, it's kind of, it's almost like a, a, a misdirect. It's almost like you're, you're watching Chris Angel, you know, on stage because what they're telling you is the rate of change is going to come down to, you know, will come down and we're going to get it down to 2% and we're going to use monetary policy to do that by crimping demand. Well, guess what? The rate of change will come down to two because the rate of change is a year over year mathematical measure, which by definition and 100% will come down. There's no doubt it'll come down. I mean, right now, the price of gasoline for this February is 30 cents below the price of gasoline for February was last February. So come February, guess what? The inputs on inflation numbers are going to be negative from gasoline. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a mathematical certainty that inflation will come down. What's not going to come down are prices. The price inflation is permanent. And in that case... Okay, we're printing all this money. What they're really doing is debasing the purchasing power of your paper wealth and income. That's the crux of the matter. The 50-year credit cycle that is now so mature that it has become problematic to continue to do this without seeing a more severe depreciation, devaluation, and debasement of the amount of things you can buy with a dollar bill. 
which, of course, dollar bill, a single dollar is almost nothing anyway. I'll give you a couple of quick examples that go back to the time when they took us off the gold standard. And you can see that the purchasing power of the dollar relative to, you know, it used to be the suit index, all right? How much did a suit cost and how much was a suit more than it was a year ago? And then it was Thanksgiving dinner was the way you measured inflation because Thanksgiving dinner cost us much more than it did last year. I'm going to give you a quick couple of things that shows you to what degree the purchasing power of a dollar has gone down since the early 1970s versus the, uh, uh, an automobile, 96%, 96.2. Okay, and I'm using the Monte Carlo, which is the most popular car in the year, you know, off the gold standard. You talk about uh, rent, 86.9% is the devaluation in the dollar relative to a rental of an apartment. And relative to gold, since 1971, it's down over 89.7%. In all these cases, the purchasing power of the dollar relative to a car, an apartment, uh, and, uh, and an ounce of gold is down over 90%. And we know that. I mean, a gallon, you know, a gallon of gas used to cost what? You know, 35 cents. I'm, you know, I actually am old enough to remember that. So in that context, you have a situation now where it is imperative that you do things that are not necessarily the things you've done in the past to protect the purchasing power of your money. And what is that? Being more active in, in your investing, okay? To the degree that passive investing is dead, indexing is dead, buy and hold is dead, to think that the stock market is just going to keep going up and up and up, and you're going to keep pace with the amount that it costs you to live by the return in the stock market that you might get, to me, is short-sighted, and kind of narrow-minded and the degree to which I just don't see that happening. I just don't. I mean, you could say, hey, well, look at a country like Argentina. Stock market's at record highs. It goes up all the time. Yeah, because the peso is worth 1,000% less than it was in 2014. And I called that move in 2014 and we made money on the peso. And it's, you know, I mean, again, because you have to keep pace. And in, even in this Gage, now you have new technologies like public and like Robinhood that make investing a more level playing field in terms of who can participate and what degree they can participate and how easy it is for them to participate. You have a whole different generation and a whole different demographic. You have wealthy people in Palm Beach, Florida that want to manage their own money because, well, we don't trust the banks since 2008. Now the financial firm's not so hot. And, you know, I mean, you read about some of the things going on. Certainly now it's what's happening with crypto. I mean, I did a speech in February, the World Outlook Conference in, in February of this year, and I called it Sock Puppet Strategies. And I said, watch out for crypto. This could be a crypto winter this summer. And sure enough, it was. And in that context, you have to be careful, you have to be involved, you have to be knowledgeable, and the degree to which it's very easy to go on your phone and trade, trading is not an easy thing to do. I'm sorry, it just isn't. I could sit here and tell you, anyone can do it, it's really easy. I can tell you, anyone can do it. I can't tell you it's easy. It takes work, it really does. You're gonna to have to, I think in the future, take advantage of other opportunities. Opportunities and things besides just buying Amazon or just buying Bitcoin. And we made a lot of money on Bitcoin. Uh, we got in at 8,800, got out at 54,000. That was the trade. One time, boom, done. Okay. You want to catch the biggest moves of the year 
and you want to be able to capitalize on them, but you need to be trading and looking at and monitoring and, and potentially being involved in as many things as possible, as far as I'm concerned. And all of these apps now and all the ways that the public can invest allow you to do this, whether it's commodities, foreign exchange is going to be huge going forward. Bond markets being short the U.S. Treasury market this year has been the biggest trade. It's been the worst year for the bond market in the history of the bond market. Think about that. How many people out there have benefited from that? Frankly, it wasn't too difficult. It really wasn't if you know how to do it. So part of what we're going to do with this podcast is talk about current events and talk about kind of the environment and talk about some of the science and just kind of talk about the world at large. But we're also going to talk about the fundamentals as they stand now. But even beyond that, it's going to be a segments of these podcasts where it's going to almost be a boot camp-like experience. I have done boot camps. I have done futures trading boot camps. I've done gold investing boot camps. I've done a variety of boot camps. I, I love them. I love giving them. I love talking about it. I love talking about trading. I love the theories and the philosophies of trading. It's an art, and it's something that anyone can do. Um, when I first started doing this, I read every book I could get on the subject. And even to the degree that I used to, when I worked at the Florida Commodities Exchange, I used to go to New York Public Library with pieces of paper and a pencil, and i go to the microfilm, and i write down prices from the 70s. I went home and wrote algorithms and you know worked on those, and some of those algorithms I still use today. So in that context, I have a wealth of knowledge. I have a, a, you know, a, a kind of a new age outlook, if you will, on things. Throw out the academics. Throw out the old school stuff. Man, the time is now to really take this on, to grab the bull by the horns, and to do some things a little bit differently that can help secure your future and protect the, you know, the purchasing power of your money. It's so important. How to create portfolios. Technical analysis, fundamentals. What is important in terms of fundamentals? Risk management. What kind of style are you? Know thyself. This is kind of a psychological game to some degree where, you know, trading and investing, you know, you have to know yourself. You have to understand yourself intricately and be honest with yourself to what your potential pitfalls and shortcomings and weaknesses might be. You know, I've been able to identify mine, my my weakness, if you will call it that, and I don't like to call it that because I don't look at it that way, is that I tend to be early in trades. Why am I early? Because I'm digging so deep into the minutia of the data, I tend to see things before it's generally accepted. And for markets to move, you need the public to generally accept it. You need some level of visibility for these things for markets to actually move. And I tend to see things well before other people tend to see them, not necessarily because I'm any smarter than anyone, but because that's how hard and how far I dig into the data. And because I'm doing this long enough, I know exactly what to look for. And these are the things I will share with you. I will share you my war stories. I will share with you the, the things not to do because trust me, I've done them all in a 40-year career that I'm happy to share with you in our new podcast here in episode number one. In the books, money, markets, and new age investing. We'll get more into where we are right now with some of these, uh, you know, the market dynamic. Is the U.S. in a recession? What's going on in Europe in terms of gas? Let's talk about China, Russia, and OPEC as a new axis of power using resources as weapons. You know, we could talk about a lot of things, and we will because there is so much going on that I can't wait to really get to it. But just to give you the lead time on, you know, what the goal of this podcast is and where I'm coming from and why I'm the guy that can help you here. Uh, that was our, you know, our attempt here at episode one to give you all that. Uh, follow us, follow us up, uh, hit us up on our next episode, money, markets and new age investing. I'm Greg Weldon. Thanks a lot for listening.